So Arthur's got the last anchor leg here on the didactics, and then we'll go to patients right. if you have. As you're digesting um, and eating, it's harder to ask questions, but feel free to do so. Uh, we had lively discussions earlier, but we're in the home stretch here, and we want to kind of reemphasize some of the points from earlier talks. So um, please bring them up as you will. Um, so the last cases are regarding the care of patients with cirrhosis. And I mentioned that um, sometimes you may have access to a hepatologist, but let's say you're do practicing rural health and meeting a patient out somewhere. We call it the boondocks. Do you call it out here, the boondocks? It's kind of like, how do you get them to see a GI specialist, uh, especially um, at a transplant center? So, so you'll often be uh, talking about disease severity and mortality risk with these patients. In the earlier talk, we went over that, but this, this, these cases are meant to reemphasize those and describe, um, at least in regards to the intersection with hep C and cirrhosis, what to do for patients. So the first case is a 48-year-old female infected with hep C, diagnosed over, well, 20 years ago. Uh, that was from injection drugs, and she also has uh, significant alcohol, but has given that up for the last couple of years. Um, she does report on review of systems, fatigue, and loss of energy. She's on disability. She had an upper GI bleed one year ago, and um, some details about that are not present at the moment. She saw a commercial where people born between 1945 and 65 are riding horses. Walking, sometimes they're walking through the woods and their light shines upon them, and they're being treated, talking about being cured of their hep C. So now she's interested in treatment after many years. And, you know, if you think about her history, you know, five, 10 years ago, she would have shown up, had, been, had interferon in the picture. She may have been actively using alcohol. Not surprising that she would have been turned away anyway, even with advancing liver disease. So uh, it's not necessarily surprising that she hasn't been treated yet. So here, let's over a few things. So what do you notice about our labs? What's jumping out to you? You can speak up. Oh, yes. There's an AFP that's above the normal range. It's 22, though. And so there's going to be many patients, if you just have liver inflammation, who have a low-level AFP. And so uh, what do you do with that? It's above normal range, so it's flagging as abnormal with a big red or however it flags in your LMR, your EMR. And so what do you do about that? That's a tough call. Um, I think what I would do um, is somewhat um, due to medical legal reasons. So some people will, at this point, not only get ultrasound imaging, but layer on an MRI just to be more sensitive for a small HCC. It's almost assuredly negative. There's usually not with 22. And even if it were, that 22 could not be due to the hepatoma. Remember, one third of tumors will not produce AFP. Now, if you're seeing levels in the hundreds or in the thousands, that's when you kind of rush to get them imaged soon, because that's more likely to be. Um, what else sticks out about her labs? The which? The low platelets. If you had to do one single test, if your resources were so limited and you just want to know whether this patient has liver disease or not, do the platelet count, because that's A. Um, you know, as you know, with uh, the ALTASTs, unless they're actively drinking, they're usually in some range like this, 50, 70, maybe 100. So even if you don't have those values, you can kind of pseudo plug those in and see what happens. But the other thing is the platelet count. I mean, it's just part of that FIB4, APRI, it's a great measurement. Um, the AST-ALT ratio, 
has also flipped. All right. Now the bilirubin, that's above normal range. 1.5 is about the normal range for most labs. The albumin. Um, so we're thinking, does she have cirrhosis? All right, which statement, though, is not true? All right, so don't answer number one, because I think we're all thinking that she likely has cirrhosis. Does she need an upper endoscopy? Does she need HCC screening? She should not be treated with an NS5A inhibitor. She should be screened for hepatitis B and HIV. It says not true. What is it? What, what does it show? Saved by the Bell? I've actually never seen an episode. I know there's Screech, Screech, Scratch, Screech. No, that's something else. All right. Which statement is not true? So, you guys, um, so the, the issue is is there an agent that she should not be treated with? Yes, there is a class of agents that you're worried about treating with, but it's not the NS5A inhibitor. So, good job. So the natural history of cirrhosis in hep C, there's a, numerous studies that tried to look at this over time. And you know, there are these sort of fast <coughs> progressors who somehow in 10 years of having hep C, they're usually male, um, who, who fast progress. And then there are some who have 40 years of infection. They even drank during that time. I alluded to this. They have HIV, and they have like virtually no fibrosis. Um, so you can think about it like a clock, where you have the infection, it's clicking, and eventually you might reach cirrhosis. Once you have cirrhosis, a new clock begins, where the clock starts ticking, it's faster, where a few percent per year can develop decompensation. And once you have decompensation, there's a really fast-moving clock that can then move to either need for liver transplantation or death. And so these decompensation events are defined as things like variceal hemorrhage, ascites, encephalopathy, and jaundice. And so jaundice for her, I mean, it's a 2.7 bilirubin. Usually it's like above three where you start to actually see it. So um, encephalopathy, you're just meeting her. You don't really know if this is her baseline or she just speaks this way because that's the way she speaks or whether she's actually slurring words because of some low-level encephalopathy. That's helpful to have family members to notice whether or not there's subtle changes. Um, ascites, so you'll do a physical exam for that, but more sensitively do an ultrasound. And then this vague idea of a GI bleed, was that simply like NSAIDs and gastritis, or was that actually varices that were bleeding? And that's a big difference in terms of future prognosis. You can also have bleeding from something called um, uh, hyperten portal hypertensive gastropathy uh, without varices. So that's another no, sort of uh, complication of portal hypertension. One point I would make is that the, the um, Fibrosis progression is variable. So you meet someone 20 years in, they're an F2, and so you're like, okay, it might take you another 20 years to get to cirrhosis. Well, that's actually not true. What we know about uh, that hep C, that it's a stuttering sort of thing as well. So you can have periods of time where it progresses really fast. I don't think I show this slide, especially in co-infection. They can do um, uh, biopsies like three years after the first one, and they can see people jump two stages in that zero to four scale. It's quite remarkable that so you can have a period of time where it's kind of slow, and then it takes off. One aspect that, at least anecdotally, as well as some literature supports, is menopause. So women, in general, have progressed less quickly than men. But we're talking about people who are infected in their 20s and 30s in the baby boom, 
and then they're coming out now in their 50s and 60s, and many of the women have now passed through menopause compared to those earlier studies. And is there an estrogen-protected effect that's now different after menopause? And I've at least had a few patients. I had one patient actually identified when her LFTs rose after menopause. Before, they, there was years of them being normal. I don't know why they were checked so often. So it's variable. And then um, the prevalence of um, issues and, and the prognosis, I mean, these are quite remarkable. Those clocks can move fast. And the prevalence over time of these complications is high. Because if you take a few percent risk per year and you keep rolling that die, that risk adds up so that you move along this. And so for esophageal varices in particular, the prevalence once you have cirrhosis can vary, again, depending on the study. Remember, you're defining cirrhosis in these studies go back a little bit, right? These original studies were defining cirrhosis by biopsy. Who gets a biopsy and that sort of thing? And so then they moved to more clinical diagnoses of, of cirrhosis which, and caught a bigger group, and so the prevalence fell. So it's sort of like uh, that's why there's such wide variance in these studies. And then the risk of bleeding once you have varices is rather high. And so if you find them early, especially for the patient with those kind of numbers, they can be banded, they can be on beta blockers and prevent a life-threatening complication. Ascites. Fluid defined simply as fluid within the peritoneal cavity. Again, it does have to do with like the blood flow through the liver and sort of the um, one, one thinking is that it's overflow from that an inability to handle sort of the filter of all the fluid going through there and so it leaks out into the abdomen. But it occurs again at very high rates. Again, a few percent per year, but you keep rolling that die, it's really high. And so um, this is just an ultrasound showing that, the fluid leaking and filling, and sometimes it's marked, and sometimes it's, it's just mild or moderate. And so this can be managed by diuretics. Hepatic encephalopathy. So it results as well, um, not necessarily from, um, uh, uh, well, it results in the setting of, again, portosystemic shunting, which is just means like bypass your liver is not detoxifying sort of things that then affect your brain, these neurotoxic substances. Ammonia is a test that's often sent for this. It's kind of like AFP, though. <laughs> sometimes correlates, sometimes doesn't, and so it's, um, it's not considered really good. The arterial ammonia may be better, but nobody wants to do those sticks for everyone, right? So, um, and so how do you treat? Well, straightforwardly, with lactulose. Lactulose is very effective. The pro what's the problem with lactulose? Diarrhea. And then they hate that side effect, and so they stop taking their lactulose, and then they can't remember why they have to take the lactulose, so it's a bad cycle. Uh, rifaximin is also very effective in reducing complications of HE, but the major issue there is cost. It's actually a bit uh, problematic. Some will use other antibiotics, which are actually absorbed, but it's, it's um, perhaps less ideal. Um, so protein restriction used to be one of the answers. If you go back to when I was in med school, that was one of the ways we manage this, because it gets converted to ammonia and all this other stuff. As it turns out, so many patients become sort of protein calorie malnourished. They develop temporal wasting. And so um, it's now considered not good to restrict protein in these individuals. And so it's no longer recommended. The other two counseling points have to do with driving and sleep. Hopefully not together, sleeping while driving. But the point is people can sometimes have episodes of confusion and have less ability to, to deal with um, car accidents and threats while on the road. Um, what is it? Marijuana also? You saw how much more car accidents? 450% increase from Colorado. So um, anyway. Uh, 
And a slower commute for you, right. <laughs> well, you're a crazy driver. We already know that, right? Um, so the, um, the uh, and sleep. That's one of the earliest signs. So ask about the sleep, the day. Oftentimes their, their um, day, night sleep cycle are reversed, and so they're you know, kind of awake at night and sleepy during the day. And the problem is, once they're decompensated, especially the safety of many agents that are used for sleep, particularly benzodiazepines, is not considered very safe. And so some of the options get to be difficult. All right, so right upper quadrant is ordered, which showed, I can't even see that. Oh my. All right. So a mass is noted. What do you do? An ultrasound-guided liver biopsy, a triple-phase CT scan, a PET scan, or repeat ultrasound in three months to confirm stability. Well, I'm asking you to manage a mass in a liver. You guys have come a long way since 9 a.m. My goodness, you showed up trying to learn how to treat hep C, and now you're thinking about this. Repeat, you're out? Oh, Scott. Just need Hamilton show tunes, and you'll get a mic to start dancing up here. You can sing. I'm telling you, you should have been in show business. All right. I think 12 is about the maximum we're getting these days. Some of you are on your phones, perhaps, making dinner plans. So, All right. Um, Ultrasound-guided liver biopsy. It turns out that for HCC, you can make the diagnosis based on very characteristic appearances by scanning. So unlike most tumors where tissue is the issue, HCC, for smaller tumors especially, they don't get tissue. So it's the triple phase CT scan, which um, is one approach that can, can work. Histology, again, is non-essential. It's a late complication for end-stage liver disease and has been seen in F3, which is why we commit those patients. Now, the rate of how often that occurs in F3 is lower than F4, no doubt. Um, so if there is a way to prognose, that's another reason I like tests like the fiber scan to help prognose within the framework of cirrhosis. Um, so CT and MRI, and if it's characteristic, it has a specific arterial sort of uh, look and then a washout, that it, that's vascular, that's hepatoma. There's nothing else that really works with that. Now, again, look how many people have a normal AFP. So this test is kind of like whatever. But if they're positive, you can then use that as a tumor uh, response. And again, the higher, with this 22, honestly, I'm not as concerned, although she happened to have it. Um, Right, and this is the idea of a triple-phase CT scan. So a traditional CT scan may miss all this. And so they look when the uh, contrast is passing through the artery and then look at a portal vein. Remember, the portal vein is a different circulation than the hepatic vein. And so that's why you see this very characteristic look. So you have got to order the special protocol of CT scan. You can also just order an MRI, um, hopefully with contrast, that will help. Okay, so it's a hypervascular lesion that washes out. So EGD, the screen for varices. Then you may ask, like, how often do we need that again? Because the GI person you referred them to was very interested in the scope. They got nicely reimbursed for that. But they're not giving you too much advice beyond that. It depends. So it depends on whether they were banded or not. It depends on sort of their overall risk. Oftentimes, some people are doing every one year for people who've already been banded and, the, and for higher risk individuals. Whereas it reverts to every three years if they're cirrhotic and they didn't see much and they just want to follow them. So again, results may vary depending on your endoscopist. Um, ultrasound, we talked about that a lot. MELD score, so this is something regular lab that you might do to indicate whether they're progressing along. 
And the meld threshold, I reviewed that a little bit earlier. It's a kind of a combination. I kind of went through it quickly, but I'll go through it again, hopefully. Uh, INR, creatinine, and Billy are three of the major drivers of that score. And so um, all labs that you can do regularly, and if it reaches a certain threshold, that's often when the liver transplant folks say, come, bring them in. You know, it, that varies depending on region quite a bit. So um, in Florida, I guess there's no helmet law. They, they transplant in much lower meld scores than they do up in the Northeast where we have more helmet laws, uh, except New Hampshire where you know, it's, their motto is live free or die. It's kind of like live free and die. So sorry for anyone from New Hampshire, but you guys make fun of other states, right? I mean, South Carolina, Alabama, it's kind of a thing, right? You guys do that. Kentucky, I mean. All right, uh, screen for decompensation, bleeding, volume, encephalopathy. So what are the treatment options and who should be treated by non-hepatologists and when is the patient too sick to be treated? So, um, and uh, you know, every workshop we're at, you could picture your patient who can't make it into one of these centers, you're trying to manage kind of out there uh, in the community. And so, um, so that's kind of the question. So she, let's go with the 1B, hep C, naive to treatment, transient elastography, 15.6. This is a, a cirrhotic without evidence of decompensation. This is case two. Um, so um, genotype 1B, EGD is fine, CTP score was calculated A, MELD score is eight, which is low. All right, so that's her. This patient should be referred to a transplant center prior to treatment. If she is cured, she can discontinue HCC screening Ribavirin will be necessary for most regimens in cirrhosis. GP times 12 weeks would be a safe and effective regimen to treat her. So which of the following is true? Good. Perfectly appropriate. You solved it, all right. Everyone knows this one, right? All right. Oh, we're only at seven, eight? All right, you guys have learned so much. Wow, nailing it. All right, so she is naive to therapy, and so you heard about just now um, from Mike's talk a little bit when we might use ribavirin, but usually, just as a rule of thumb, it's when you have multiple, multiple factors, cirrhosis plus rases plus treatment failure in the past, and you're, that's when you're approaching ribavirin. If you go in the guidelines, there are very few select situations where ribavirin is being added. And so we, I, we already talked about whether you can stop HCC screening. Right now, we don't know the answer yet. There will probably be future studies indicating um, and uh, when, whether or not you can stop. And there are some patients that were treated really early on with the interferon days. They were cured, and they had cirrhosis at that time. I mean, the response rates were like 5%, 10%. But there are a few who have been followed at NIH, and they biopsy them again. And 15 years later, they, are, they apparently are F0. Now, is it that throughout the liver? I don't know. These are serial liver biopsies. Could there still be some area that's scarred? I didn't even use that word. Remember, fibrosis is a bit of a scar. And wherever there's scar, there's remodeling, there's sort of issues, and there can be transformative events leading to cancer. So, and she's a little too early for the transplant center. Treatment options generally are about the same, especially for naive patients. And, but there may be subtle differences, again, found in the website. Protease inhibitors are okay in child A, but not in B or C. I think we've already heard that. One of the safety issues. So in most cases, what that means is cirrhotic patients can be treated by you all. All right, so we kind of converged how easy the treatments are, how easy it is to find cirrhosis, and talk about it. Is it easy? 
you'll go out and do it. And then how to treat, even in your clinic, uh, patients who, treat me, treat me. All right, so one-stop shopping. Um, we're not animating this yet. We keep putting this up just really to emphasize how you would take this patient. She's 1B, she's compensated cirrhosis. You know, it's all out there. We can animate it for you if you want and show you it. But, and then if you look under treatment experience, this is going to treatment naive. It drops down like this. He did type 1, and then here. It's just one of those kind of things. All right, so here are some of the differences, I guess, when you take out 1A patients. The patient was 1B, but the 1A um, uh, patients, you can have these differences where you end up with, um, for instance, the uh, Lodipus or Sofosfavir um, being eight weeks for, again, certain individuals who have lower viral RNAs who are non-black, non-HIV, and then GP for eight weeks. Great regimen, right? Eight <coughs> weeks, you're done. It's like over before you know it, 56 days. Patients are amazed. Um, but cirrhosis advances those to 12 weeks if you're using those agents. And that's all review at this point. Post-treatment management. So we talk about reinfection and counseling for that, but here, this is how a, a hepatologist who provided this paper said, no further monitoring, F01. F2, what do you do there? First of all, with our modern tests, you won't really know if they're F2, F1.5, F2.5. You know, they're kind of in some range based on your test. So what do you do there? Do you do a repeat test, and if they go backwards, then say, okay, you're fine. That's at least one approach she, pro she proposed. Um, if there's progression, remember, there are other liver diseases, the NASH, that can happen after cure. The other big epidemic, in addition to these infectious diseases, is obesity, right? So you gotta watch for that. And then advanced stage, the things that we already talked, talked about. So SVR does wonderful things. In addition to viral eradication, you see decreased um, of, um, these terrible outcomes, and you can see improved liver histology and reduction of liver stiffness, et cetera. And um, really, it's a market benefit, particularly for those with advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. As a rule of thumb, I say it's about 80% for each of these complications. Doesn't mean it's zero. I just had a patient represent after cure who's, um, who's decompensating. So, um, so it does happen at low rates, even after cure for these individuals. Now, the controversy um, that Mike kind of went through quickly, because we knew we were going to get to it in this talk, is the HCV treatment and HCC. There were some people who found some early HCC after DA treatment. And if you Google this, you'll find these reports. You're like, I didn't hear about that at the workshop. So I, I wanted to go through this really briefly, because patients may find it and ask you. Um, the hypothesis is that you have kind of this low-grade inflammation, and you know the immune system helps surveil against cancer and maybe keeps things in check to a certain extent, eradicating cells that become aberrant and have mutations or whatnot. Um, and so we've learned that. It, what, what are the two revolutions in, in medicine, right? Hep C and cancer. They're harnessing the immune system in many cancers, as you may know, to like um, produce responses. And so this is the idea that you remove the Hep C, you remove that immune sort of help, and then HCC develops in very strange ways. And so that's the idea of, of the break on HCC being removed. However, if you really look at larger studies, other than those case report series, it looks like the risk um, of those treated versus untreated is kind of similar. So it's like the transformative events have already happened, and in the first few years after hep C treatment, it's about equal. And it keeps coming out like this. So those early case series that raised a lot of concern that these things may be causing um, HCC, 
Another uh, thing I didn't mention is in the interferon days, interferon is actually an anti-proliferative agent that is used in certain cancers, most prominently melanoma, yeah, interferon alpha. And so like we're curing it in a different way than we were before. So that's the idea that maybe something's different with the DAAs. All right, 62-year-old female. We're going three female cases in a row. Go. Um, genotype 2, non-responder to interferon-based therapy, no evidence of encephalopathy, mild ascites though, controlled with low-dose Lasix and aldactone. Bilirubin's 2.7, albumin's 2.2, INR is 2. What is, what is, what stage is she? What is her stage? Oh shoot, I don't have your calculator for you. Is she A, child's class A, B, C, or D? No such thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, if there's a child D, oh my goodness, yeah. All right, this is hard to know off the top of your head, right? You're like, oh wow, this is really throwing a curveball in there. So the, when you look at how to calculate it, there are multiple, multiple columns, and then you add, add up points. And so many of you are kind of gestalting that she's D. Some of you said C. All right, well, let's go through it. So no encephalopathy, but she has ascites. Diuretic responsive. Billy Rubin was, oh, now I need to remember. What was it? What? Two point something. Another two point. Albumin, 2.2. INR. Right. So she's right there. What was that? Yeah, INR was two. Right. So she is, oh no, she actually gains another point for the albumin. Sorry, I missed that. That 2.2. So this is what gets her to a class C and the highest risk. So this can be subtle. Like, I mean, her albumin on next check could be 2.7 or 2.9, but at the moment, she classifies as a C. All right? You're concerned about her. And again, I showed this a version of this slide earlier, I think the same one. The three-month mortality is rather high. And you, this is when the hepatologist gets called, and she gets, hopefully, relatively quickly into a transplant center. And the calculator, um, again, available at the University of Washington, if you're Googling, University of Washington, Hep C, gets you to the CDC-funded non, there's no drug money behind this, this is all CDC-funded, uh, great resource with a lot of additional talks like this, interactive um, learning. So now what do you do? Child, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you don't have cirrhosis. I don't have cirrhosis. Right. Actually, no. But the point is that if you put a normal person scores then 1111, based yeah. on how they're starting to. Yeah. Because so this is only used for cirrhosis and not for liver disease. Yeah. Very sharp. I'm not sensing any encephalopathy there. And his, <laughs> he's, he's also stayed awake through the whole thing, so you know he's not got that whole sleep thing going. All right. So, um, all right. Oops. Did we start this? I'm not sure how it works. Okay, so now you have a child C in front of you. Do you treat this patient? Do you refer the patient to a transplant center? Do you arrange for palliative care and hospice services? More, more jeopardy. Yeah, that's good. It's very appropriate. Doesn't this music make you smarter? I mean, just because you're watching Jeopardy? All right, you're all into referring. That's, that makes sense. Now, treating is kind of interesting because there are situations I've heard of, including workshops like this, where they can't make it there, and so the, your primary care provider trying to figure out what to do. 
Um, all right, so yes, there is a recommendation, ideally, to a hepatologist, ideally in a transplant center, because that's really the thing that will reverse uh, cirrhosis. It's replacing kind of the whole garden, right? You're not just getting the garden out of hep C. It's still scarred and kind of problematic. The liver transplant makes that fresh, so. All right, so avoid protease inhibitors. I think that's like the fourth, fifth time we've mentioned it, but it's an important safety issue for B or C. For A, fine. Um, and then decompensated cirrhosis. What you'll notice here, this is um, a trial of Ladipasir sofosivir, um, so kind of our <coughs> earlier generation than the more novel generation. Decent response rates for CCP class B or C. Remember, we're adding. Oftentimes, these patients were treated earlier and treatment experienced, if you look in these studies, right? Because somebody were following them. They were hoping to reverse the cirrhosis 10 years ago. And so they have a lot of factors that would promote relapse, and you're still achieving 90%. And ribavirin, while it's problematic, many patients are baseline anemic and whatnot, you can do it. You just may have to do the low-dose approach. And so, um, so that's one approach. And there's this sort of go low and slow and, and ramp up rather than hit them hard early as well. That's an option for patients who are at higher risk for ribavirin complications. And the overall safety, of course, AEs are happening at a very high rate in this population, right? They are very sick patients with liver disease. Um, but in the end, the ones that result in like lidipasir, sofosivir treatment interruption were low. Deaths do incur, and some patients got liver transplanted uh, during this time. So, um, so soft valdo has also been trialed in, in this population. And here you're seeing 12 weeks, 12 weeks plus riba, or 24 weeks. Again, you'll notice EGFR greater than 50 in this case, but you know some of our patients have renal disease, and then the renal disease plus decomp gets you in a pickle. Okay, so hopefully that's definitely like you know get them to a center. Um, but um, again, you can't have HCC. HCC is a bit of a issue because those cells, in theory, can support Hep C. The cell cultures that support Hep C actually are hepatoma-based, and so. Um, could you have a reservoir within a cancer that's not like curable the way traditional hepatocytes are? All right, and then SVR12 again, uh, pretty good. A bit better for ribavirin. 24 weeks acceptable, but somehow this one won in this uh, trial. Um, so multi-center and whatnot. So that leads to a variety of, of um, sort of treatment algorithms that include the 24-week regimen um, for those who are ribavirin ineligible, and then 12 weeks plus ribavirin for those who can take ribavirin. So there are data. Now, what happens with CTP score afterwards? Like a lot of people are asking, does the liver heal? The fiber scan seems to get better. So what happens to their actual scores? Well, you'll notice that on average, there's some improvement. So when you think about it from a prognostic center, we had someone who was like a a C plus, maybe you put her in a B minus over time, and maybe avoid a liver transplant. I wouldn't call it recompensation, but there, we have some patients who semi get in that point, recompensated, where they're able to live and have better quality of life, and you're managing their ascites and everything appropriately. The meld as well, on average. If you left them alone, by the way, the meld tends to increase, right? But here you're seeing 51% get better after cure. So that's what we're seeing from the studies of treatment, so that you can provide hope. 
And so while they might make it to a liver transplant center, it's a delicate decision, as, as we alluded to earlier, whether to leave them alone and let them get their transplant or cure them and have them avoid. I mean, liver transplant sounds like you're replacing the whole liver. That's great. But you are introducing a kind of a new medical illness of immunosuppression and med management and all these other things. This is a slide that talks about the waitlist additions for hep C since we've had these agents. And if you project this out, this is likely getting better. So there are these crazy reviews that say, like, we need more proof. We need a randomized controlled trial of patients to demonstrate <laughs> that, that hep C treatment and curative treatment works. Because you know, we can't rely on the stuff from the interferon era. Yeah, many of you are like doing this thing, which is good, because that group, they're still like trying to promote this. They're like, we need a randomized controlled trial. Otherwise, we might be wasting our money. Well, I don't consider this wasted money. And if we wait for a randomized controlled trial, which would take five or six years before we allowed broad access to these agents, how many people are going to die each year? Hep C kills perhaps around 30,000 United States residents in any given year. So if we wait five years, all right, off the soapbox. All right, so what to tell patients, uh, I'm sorry, is um, that 74% may improve, some may stay unchanged, and some may worsen and still require a liver transplant. So that's kind of what the hepatologist at that center would do. Those are the EMTs? Yeah, exactly. So if they're A, they're low meld, they can be treated by you. Okay, this is a major message, and I'm, I'm not a hepatologist, I'm an ID person trying to pretend to be one today, wearing the suit and all, but in the end, um, they would tell you the same thing, that it is possible, all right? This has changed a lot from 10 years ago, that a child's A cirrhotic, you could do a lot here. Counsel about coffee, alcohol reduction. Many of you are probably better than that because you deal with it on an everyday basis. Uh, all the liver specialists are pretty good at it. But, uh, and you have these relationships. You talked about trust. Um, you have closer relationships than um, these specialists, you know, in these centers. In cirrhotics, um, outcomes do improve after SVR, and so all patients still require monitoring. And so once you've reached B or C, it'd be hard to imagine stopping that, at least, you know, uh, um, stopping that surveillance and whatnot. But uh, for A's, you know, that's perhaps a little more questionable. At this time, it's still recommended to continue monitoring F3s and F4s going forward. All right, so that's cirrhosis, and you've heard I mean, this covers a, a vast array of patients that you've heard about. We did a little on co-infection. We did um, patients with substance use, uh, naive patients. And now um, you layer in some cirrhosis. I hope this covers, hopefully, the vast majority of patients that, that you'd encounter. So, so two quick points. One, um, on your pre-post test, there's a question that has a person who's got um, cirrhosis. And, and the one of the potential answers is, uh, do an EGD on all the patients. There's kind of controversy about mm. that. So that, was, that particular question was written by one of our hepatologists who does this, who believed that the EGD should only be done in those who have a sense of a higher portal pressure, like the splenomegaly or um, a high uh, fiber scan score over 20 or something like that. So in that particular question, EGDing all cirrhotic patients will be a wrong answer. But as the ID people see it, I think Arthur just showed, yeah. um, I usually send them all over there and, and let them decide. But I'd feel better once they get yeah. at least one EGD to show. Yeah. Is that what you do? I mean, it's, it's like cirrhosis, again, with a small C versus a capital yep. C. I think that's the way I think about it. So there's some patients, it's like, you need to be scoped yesterday. And then right. others, 
I'm like, you know, that's an additional barrier. I'm not going to let it prevent treatment. I'm going to forge forward. And sometimes it gets skipped. So well, I, 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 I'm not referring all F3s. Let's put no, it that no, way. F3s. Yeah. F4 maybe. If I think they're F4, I usually send them. Right. Yeah. And the other thing that we haven't, I don't think, said, um, when you're following along, you've got this child B patient you've sent to uh, hepatology, but they're only seeing them rarely because they're very busy over there and this person's not really high on the transplant list. So the person's got ascites, um, not huge, but some. And you get a phone call from their spouse and they say, um, in the last 12 hours, so-and-so's had some pretty rapid deterioration and they're a little encephalopathic. So you say, bring them into the ER. What's the first thing you want to do when they get there? Sorry? Tap it and... Yeah, you want to tap their ascites. Any change in status, I mean, it can be a rising creatinine or... But, and they don't have to have fever. They don't have to have any signs of abdominal pain. But any change in clinical status in a person with cirrhosis who's got ascites, it's SBP, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, until proven otherwise. So you've got to do that. And, Otherwise, and you'll miss it. If they're variceal bleeding, there were studies looking at antibiotics in that setting because uh, that seemed to improve outcomes. So usually, like, multiple of these things are happening all at once. And even if they're not proven to have the definition of SBP, it seems like infection at that moment is a major problem because antibiotics seem to prevent something in that population, even if you're not culturing something. So I know many of you aren't hospital-based, I don't think. Some of you might be. But um, that's why the care of these sick liver patients often involve sort of attacking on multiple fronts. 